Hey, Prairie Pod listeners, Megan here. Thanks for tuning in to season four of the Prairie Pod. We're so excited you're here and part of our Prairie family. This past year has thrown a lot at us, and for every challenge, we have risen to it, found opportunity, and championed the Prairie and its importance to our quality of life. We felt it was only right that we start this season with a very special dedication to a very special conservationist. So we're going to take a few minutes as our kickoff to the new season to honor the life of longtime conservationist Marty Baker. When you work in conservation, you're not just working with coworkers. You're working within a community. And when a member of that community dies, you mourn not just the loss of a wonderful person, but also the loss of all the good they were doing for conservation, for the land, for the prairie. Marty was part of my community. He was part of our prairie community. If you drive across southern Minnesota from Wyndham to the South Dakota border and you find yourself on a waterfowl production area with reconstructed prairie, that prairie was likely planted by U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service technician Marty Baker. Marty worked out of the Wyndham Wetland Management District office over the last 30 years, and many of you may have known him. Earlier in March, Many of us attended the viewing and funeral of Marty. As soon as you entered the room to pay your respects, hanging there was Marty's work shirt, badge in place, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service logo prominently displayed. The only thing missing was his rancher-style sun hat and constant smile. His shirt was placed next to a bunch of cut prairie plants, complete with little clipped-in butterflies and birds. Next to a display of prairie flowers from the Wyndham Wetland Management District staff were Marty's fire helmet and work gloves, placed with care and conviction that these badges of service are resting now. The thousands of acres of prairie that they cared for, living on as a testament to the man who dedicated his life to them. Marty was a lifelong learner, always curious and asking questions, even though he knew more about the land in his pinky finger than most of us know in our whole being. At the viewing, I met his wife, Judy, and two sons, Bennett and Andrew, who have his eyes and his wonderful smile. I had never met Judy before, but when I introduced myself and expressed my sorrow at her loss and the loss of my friend, she pulled me across the COVID rope into the biggest hug I've received all year and thanked me. She thanked me because we recorded Marty's voice for her to have forever. As Judy was hugging me, she asked me if we could share his voice and wisdom with others. And because Judy asked me to, I'm sharing with you a place where you can go and hear his voice, sit with him one more time, and try to learn a little about a lifetime of dedication to the prairie from my friend Marty. In Season 2, Episode 3, A Legacy of Conservation with the Service. Marty, we remember you with this small tribute now while we work on continuing your legacy of finding joy in life and always being ready to learn. We honor your commitment to the prairie, knowing it will take many of us to match your contribution. We hope you enjoy the show this whole season. Take a moment for yourself and remember to be like Marty and find peace, joy, and hope on the prairie. I know he would say, there's always something new to learn.
season four. Who's ready for more? Me, 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 me. Okay, sorry. <laughs> 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 like, I'm so had, excited. You haven't had coffee this morning, have you? No, you I just had a away lot. From the caffeine. A lot of tea, and I'm just so excited to see your beautiful face. There's caffeine and tea. Hey, it's wonderful <laughs> to see you too, Megan. A long, how long has it been? Eight, nine months? No, it, I'm, I'm kidding. I'm kidding because we work together. I was going to say, but... not long enough. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. <laughs> I don't have enough ticks on my little board yet. <laughs> Time to see Mike again. Yeah, Mike, understood. we made it. Season four. It's the we kickoff it, today. Yeah. We made it. Can you look? This is episode 29. For you. Yeah, I've, I've got a third of that experience, but... Um, Mike, it's 29 kind of and you're feeling Congrats. fine. Congrats, Megan, on all that. <laughs> Congrats to both of us, co-host friend. We couldn't do it without <laughs> each other. <laughs> We're high-fiving through Skype. You just virtually high-fived. Yeah. That was amazing. Virtually high-fived. Oh, we better get started because we have got a season for you. It's going to yeah, be great. I mean, this is probably revealing my biases, but the first episode is is a wonderful topic. It is the best topic ever. No, wow. I, I, I don't it's mean a that. It's a bold statement. It's a bold statement. Okay, prayer friends, if you don't like this, you have Mike Moreland to blame. <laughs> well, today's podcast, we're going to talk about snakes. Don't get scared. Snakes are a super important part of the prairie, and we are going to be talking about fabulous bluff prairies of the east and the majestic expanses of prairie in western Minnesota. No matter where you are, snakes are an important piece of what makes prairies function. I'm sorry to interrupt. I was just getting ready to congratulate you on not doing that on every S. Um, I I did it on a C just for so the C's didn't feel left out. Peace. Gotcha. Gotcha. (laughs) I didn't didn't want to feel left out. We're going to slide into these details. See what I did there? We're going to slither. We're going to slide. It's going to be super. That's nice. So (laughs) as we do with every season, we like to kick it off with a quote. And typically we kick it off with the father, the conservationist, the one, the Aldo, the Leopold. But we're just going to shift gears in season four because we do what we want. So we're going to start with a fabulous, fabulous quote from Wangarima Athai, who is a fantastic conservationist. And she said a lot of amazing stuff. She did a lot of wonderful work in Africa working on forests and other ecosystems there. And she's just incredible. And I can think of no better person to kick off season four than her. And this quote, Mike, it really resonated with me. It's very appropriate. I like it too. it's, It's appropriate. So here it is. There are opportunities even in the most difficult moments. Yeah, that simplicity is wonderful and (laughs) something we all need to remember. We do need to remember that. And I think it's just going to frame what you're going to hear in all of season four. We have a lot of good prairie content for you. We have a lot of good restoration content for you. But we also have a lot of why prairie matters, why it feeds our soul and why it's so critically important for our wellness. And so we're going to, you know, we're going to dive deep this season. You're going to be we're going there. We're getting emotional. Get ready. (laughs) Okay, Mike, it's time to snake, snake, rattle and roll. Okay, we have two very special guests with us today, and we're just going to, you know, stop with our snake jokes and let them introduce themselves. Uh, Jamie, we're going to start with you. Tell us a little bit uh, who you are and what you do. 
Sure. My name is Jamie Edwards. I am the wildlife manager for the Whitewater Wildlife Management Area in Southeast Minnesota. And I've been here for not quite three years. And prior to that, I was the non-game wildlife specialist that covers Southeast Minnesota. Worked a lot on rattlesnakes and bluff prairie restoration as part of that job. And we'll be doing uh, similar work here at the Whitewater, um, just a little bit fewer snakes than some of the areas that I've worked with in the past. Welcome, nice. Jamie. Yeah, Thank welcome. <laughs> Mike's former coworker. Yeah, I guess you're still still his coworker. Uh, yeah, one, absolutely. One DNR. Yeah, you bet. Lisa, go ahead and introduce yourself. Well, I'm uh, Lisa Galvin Inver. I am the other uh, non-game wildlife specialist for the DNR Southern Region, along with the marvelous Mike Worland. And uh, <laughs> I've been in this position since 1990, uh, 1999. So I've been here a while and, um, you know, working uh, in conservation of prairies and native biodiversity, which includes snakes, is a major part of our work. And in fact, it's a key component under the Minnesota Wildlife Action Plan, um, which isn't only for our program, but it's a guide for our work. And so uh, part, of, part of that entails further drilling down, you know, to um, concentrating our actions like in um, conservation focus areas, including the Prairie Coteau Conservation Focus Area. But of course, we can't do it alone. And we also work with a lot of others, including the also marvelous Megan Benage and others. And that's the power of Prairie Partnerships. So I'm just really excited to talk about snakes, for goodness snakes. Oh, there you go. There <laughs> well you go. played, nicely done. Well, we uh, love since Lisa, working with you also, Lisa. <laughs> since she said how long she's been on, I, I feel that that opened it up for me to say she's a she her experience has made her a leader in the non-game program. Aww. So I'm, I'm very like, happy there are that no she's bonus points for sucking up. <laughs> oh, I thought there was. I, I assume there was. Yeah, I wasn't going to mention how long she's been with the program. So she said it. That makes me uh, happy to point out that she is a leader, and I'm I'm very happy she's on the episode. Me well, let's let's too. let's jump right into the snakes. Um, first, I think let's start with Jamie and talking about the southeast. We we we, we mentioned the southeast bluff prairies on this show some. Um, I think since I started, I've been bringing it up. Um, That's not fair. Uh, Jess brought it up quite a bit. Oh, okay. Jess, I'm sorry if you're listening. Um, I appreciate you bringing it up as well. But but first of all, let's, let's just immediately, Jamie, if you don't mind, let's immediately jump in to rattlesnakes because I think that is always a hot topic and always something that people want to know more about. You, you have probably – talked for about a thousand hours in your career about rattlesnakes yeah. and so please if, if you wouldn't if you wouldn't mind give us a, just a quick summary of their history in the state and uh, their current status and where they live and that kind of sure. thing so timber rattlesnakes um, scientific name crotalus hortus is uh, a species we're at the edge of the range in minnesota they occur in the southeast part of the state historically they went all the way up to the Twin Cities, um, following along that, that um, eastern edge of Minnesota in the bluffless or driftless area. Um, they have been listed as threatened, uh, I think, in 1987 or 89, and have been listed as threatened ever since then. And the biggest thing that's threatening them is, is human persecution because a lot of people are afraid of snakes. 
Uh, they kill them when they see them, regardless of whether they're doing harm or posing a threat. And so that's a big issue. The, the population now is no longer um, in the full extent of its, his, of its historic range. It's now retracted to the far southeast corner of the state. So Houston, Fillmore, Winona, Wabasha counties, maybe of a, po- a small population in Olmstead County, but pretty pretty resigned to the southeast part of the state. Basically, the bluff country, right? Yep, pretty much. Yep. yep. How far west reports- did they? How far west? I'm oh, sorry, Jamie. How far west did they used to go? Do you know? Um. So there's been some records of them headed like about south central, um, about about halfway across the bottom of the state. But gotcha. the, some of the old records, they're, they're so old that it's mm-hmm. hard to tell if they're timber rattlesnakes or prairie rattlesnakes. Because ah. a lot of times they'll just say rattlesnake. And so we suspect some of those historic records uh, were actually prairie rattlesnakes. Well, Jamie, I want to interject something here really quick. When you say records, a lot of our listeners might not realize that the DNR actually tracks the location of our rare species or species that are considered species of greatest conservation need. And so when you say records, you literally mean records. <laughs> like we have a whole database yeah. of natural heritage inventory of the state. And we're constantly updating that as we learn more about this beautiful, beautiful place that we all live. So I just want right. to make that point to our listeners. Yeah. Well, and it's important with rattlesnakes too, because um, a lot of our reports were from citizens reporting to the DNR. And then we were able to verify uh, those with follow-up and so, so it is important for people when they're out and about seeing different species to go ahead and report them. They can report them through Herp Map um, Mapper. They can report them to the DNR. Um, and it's just good to know um, what species people are seeing and where. Even if it's common species, sometimes that's really nice to know too, because some species that were common are no longer common. So it's it's nice to keep track of some of that. But definitely, those listed species we're we're tracking through the Heritage Database. Wonderful. Sorry to interrupt you, Jamie. What else? What else do we need to know about rattlesnakes? Yeah. Um, so rattlesnakes uh, in our part of the the um, the world are uh, found typically on the south and west facing um, slopes in the southeast Minnesota. That's typically where their dens are found, um, which is why we focus a lot of our habitat work on dens because we don't have enough time and money to focus on all of the habitat. So we pick the key component to their survival. Um, and part of that is because timber rattlesnakes in our part of the world don't reach reproductive maturity until they're 9 to 11 years old. And they also don't reproduce every year because it's very physically demanding for, for the female to, to reproduce. And so, um, so because of that, it makes the, the den areas really critical for protection and for um, habitat enhancement and, and restoration. So that's why we focused a lot on those bluff prairies. However, they are called the timber rattlesnake, and so they do use timber. And so they may den <clears throat> on those south and west facing bluffs, but once they emerge in the spring and they disperse, they are actually using the woodlands, the surrounding woodlands for foraging, So, which is why they're called timber rattlesnakes. The, the females, the pregnant females are going to stick pretty close to the dens, but the non, which a pregnant female is called gravid, G-R-A-V-I-D. So there's your word for the day, gravid. Thanks for spelling that out. Yep. <laughs> and so, um, so the pregnant ones will stay on the dens um, and find themselves and incubate their young because uh, they give birth to live young. So they're not going to be laying eggs like some of the snakes. They're going to be giving birth to live young in September. Oh. 
Um, but the non-gravid females and the males are going to disperse and they go off into the woodlands and forage. And so if you see a rattlesnake in southeast Minnesota, count yourself very lucky. Um, they are uh, a beautiful creature. They're not as vicious as people like to make them out to be. They're quite docile. And even um, in situations where they can be cornered, they're still relatively docile. Uh, they sound scary because they rattle. They can also puff themselves up with air and they can thrash themselves around, especially those males. And they can be a little scary. I've, I've encountered a couple of those males and you're like, I just want to just back <laughs> off and leave you alone. <laughs> we'll go find another snake over there. Solid <laughs> advice. I don't encounter any spiders on the way. I'm good though. <laughs> Solid advice. Now you just told everyone your weakness, Jamie. Yeah. Never, uh, never tell uh, them your weakness. Never, <laughs> never give it away. Jamie has um, no problem with rattlesnakes, but spiders are a different story. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> you're leading us right into. Uh, I know we could easily go on a spider tangent here, but you're leading us right into our next question that we have for you which is one that I'm sure a lot of people listening are like ooh rattlesnakes I don't know about that you know so we want to talk with you a little bit about how just how lethal are they and how often do people get bit and before you answer that question I want to set the stage for you a little bit I have been lucky to see some rattlesnakes in my day whether it was when I was working in the woods of uh, Georgia and Alabama <laughs> or whether I was in North Carolina <laughs> or in the great state of Arkansas, where I'm from, or <laughs> even in the southwest of the United States in Arizona. In fact, I just saw a rattlesnake. In fact, I feel like snakes are attracted to me. They, like, are they know that I'm coming <laughs> and they're like, oh, hey. I'm real giant. Did you want? Did you want to see a snake today? Here I am. Like I feel like that's how they treat me. So I, I am afraid of snakes. That is my weakness. I am. I am terrified of them. Anybody who's been in the field with me will know. It doesn't matter, venomous or not. I see a snake. I'm running. All of a sudden, you'll just see a lady throw her clipboard, and she's just running out of the cattails. Well, I, do I even had a snake. I even had a snake land on my shoulder. Oh, no. While it was hanging out on some cattails, sunning itself. It shouldn't be up that high. That's not normal. <laughs> it should be on the ground where I can see it. And so for, for our listeners who have this fear, one thing I will say, even though I, I am deathly afraid of snakes, I certainly am appreciate immensely their role in the ecosystem, their role in our prairies. And I do think that they're very beautiful. I just don't want them near me. And that, so that's a pretty common thing. <laughs> yeah, that's a you know, it's but but they are super super duper important. And so one thing I've always been impressed with with snakes is that I'm getting to my point finally, Mike, you're welcome. <laughs> is that, is that they don't want to be near me either, even though I have this impression that I always tend to, <laughs> to happen upon them in the field. When I do happen upon them, they are moving away from me or they are rattling to say, hey, I'm here, lady, please get away. And so just talk us through, you know, help us calm down, take a breath, talk yeah. us through this, you know, just how lethal are they? How often do people get bit? What's the concern level? So, so a bite is pretty rare. Um, his, we've we've only had one death accounted uh, attributed to a rattlesnake bite, and that was in the late 1800s, early 1900s. And medical care was quite different back then, and so uh, we haven't had a death recorded since. We've had bites. Um, we had a bite in 1984 where a guy was taking a picture of a snake, and he he slipped and 
his hand put, he got his hand on the snake and it bit him on his thumb. And we, so if you're not messing around with snakes, the chances of being bit are pretty slim. We did have what we would, what we consider a legitimate bite a few years ago where a person was going out and um, um, looking, going into his barn and got the snake got pinched by the door and bit him. So how, how lethal or deadly is that? So with timber rattlesnakes, they have what's called a hematoxin. There's neurotoxins and there's hematoxins. Most of the species out West have neurotoxins and that'll mess up your nervous system and really, really do some serious damage to you. With the hematoxins, they're designed to break down tissue. And so it's painful, but the chances of you dying from a timber rattlesnake bite are pretty slim. It's going to be painful. You're going to have black skin. Um, you're going to have some platelet issues for a while, but you're going to recover in, in the majority of cases. So, so I don't consider them very lethal. Um, certainly, um, you could, uh, let me back up a little bit. With bites to humans, we consider about 40% of those to be dry bites. And so a timber rattlesnake cannot shut off the venom. They, they have venom glands in their head with hollow teeth. But those muscles, which their head is really big and triangular, and so those muscles can squeeze that venom gland and push the venom down through the teeth and be in actively injected. So a lot of times when a rattlesnake bites a person, they're not big enough to eat they're not considered prey. It's more of a reaction defensive bite. And so a lot of times those are not actively injected venom bites. So they're considered dry bites. So, um, but it does take for a human, uh, the average adult male, um, about 10 vials of antivenom for treatment. And, those, and, it's, and it's an expensive treatment, um, but there is an antivenom available. And we do have that locally in rattlesnake country here. So... So I would say you're pretty safe in the woods if you stay uh, at least three to six feet away from rattlesnakes. If you do encounter them, the chances of you getting bit are going to be pretty slim. So the one thing I would say if you are hiking in bluff country, if you're out hunting or just hiking, if you're climbing rocks, just watch where you're putting your hands, wear leather gloves. Um, and if you're stepping down over rocks, you have a stick or something, um, just kind of poke that stick around before you're stepping over rocks. Um, particularly in May, uh, May is, is the prime emergence time for uh, rattlesnakes in Minnesota. That, that can vary, but I would say typically the peak emergence is, is early to mid-May. That's changing a little bit uh, with climate change. It seems like they're coming out a little bit earlier. But uh, so, those are, so May and then in um, September and October, those would be the times that I would be cautious if you're hiking in rattlesnake country in southeast Minnesota and those bluffs. I was just going to say, it sounds like a, a, like a, maybe so far in recent decades, it's been a, it's been a bite every few years, every yeah. five to 10 years, something yeah, like that. About that. Yep. So it's pretty rare. Pretty rare. Yeah. You're more likely to get stung by a bee or bit by a dog or hit by a car. Right. <laughs> nice. Did you want any of those? <laughs> yeah, not not that we want any of those things, but that puts it into a nice perspective. And the other thing that I took away from while you're talking and giving us that really good overview is that healthy respect for wildlife is always encouraged. Yeah. Like you are in <laughs> you are in their home. We we are certainly a piece of the ecosystem, but we need to remember that we're a piece and that this is their home also, and we need to be watchful. Right. 
for wildlife in, in all situations, just like you would be for poison ivy. Like you, yeah, you just exactly. need to be aware of these things when you're outside. Right. There, there are things that are, uh, you don't want an undesirable interaction. And so you just need to be aware yeah. and you also need to be respectful yeah. of wildlife. We also have, That's what I took yeah, away. We, we do have some rattlesnake mimics. mimics. Many of our non-venomous species uh, will shake their tail and it can be pretty convincing that it's a rattle because they can shake it fast enough that it can make some noise. So uh, I think Lisa will be talking a little bit about some species that, uh, that can mimic rattlesnakes. Jamie, um, I, I, well, I should just tell the audience. So I worked in the Southeast for a little over a year and I was, I was really stunned when I, when I started down there at the work that you and others have done, you know, when you look across the landscape and you see the, the, all these bluffs, um, anyway, I don't want to start going too far down the road and and steal your thunder here. Can you tell, (laughs) tell us about the work that you and others have done down there uh, for habitat management for snakes? The program started out, it it was called the landowner incentive program. And it was um, some funding we got from the fish and wildlife service to target areas that had rare species. Um, and so for us, we, we were working with, with timber rattlesnakes, among other species. And so that has, as, as that developed over the years, it changed into the state wildlife grants and then the competitive state wildlife grants. So there's two pots of funding that we've used for this. And plus the Lassard Sam's Outdoor Heritage Fund was used also to um, fund these projects. But what we were aiming for is a landscape level approach to management where we worked with public and private landowners who had bluff prairies that actually had rattlesnakes. So we targeted those landowners. And then we also targeted landowners adjacent to those, whether they were public or private. And we really targeted our work on bluff prairies. And one of the things that's happening with our bluff prairies is the lack of fire over the years has allowed a lot of trees and brush to move into these um, open landscapes and start to diminish the prairie and convert it into forest. Now, some of those converted into oak forest and that, that transition happened and we let that happen. Now, a lot of them are covered with cedars and Eastern red cedar is a native species, but it, on these bluffs, it's just gotten crazy. And so they completely cover the bluffs. We lose all the prairie understory and it's basically just dirt underneath. And so what we've done Mm -hmm. a lot is go in and remove those cedars remove some of the tree species that um, don't belong on the bluffs. We, it depends on the landowner. Some of them want to leave oaks and hickories and, and some aspen. But for the most part, um, we, would, we would reduce that tree cover and reintroduce fire and, and get, try to get that prairie to come back. And uh, we, had, we had a lot of success. And a lot of landowners, very cooperative, great partnerships. We worked with the Nature Conservancy. We worked with the... National Wild Turkey Federation. We've worked with Audubon, Minnesota. So a lot of different groups you wouldn't think would necessarily be doing a lot of snake work, um, but we did. We had some great partnerships working on that, and that work is continuing. I've changed positions, um, but I'm happy to see that that work is continuing because, boy, I'm trying to think. We've surveyed, because just from surveying, we've surveyed over 600 and well, close to 700 bluffs, and we've worked wow. on probably, uh, I'd have to add them up, but I'd say close to 200 sites we worked on for rattlesnakes, so it was, it was pretty extensive. Pretty I mean, the, the, habitat manage, 
the habitat management for bluff prairies, I mean, you're, you are still doing that in your current position yep. at, at Whitewater yep. WMA. So it's, yep. you are, you are continuing to lead the way on that kind of management. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And as you're talking, Jamie, I know that this work, you know, is under the, I guess, banner of the timber rattlesnake, if you will. But I think the important thing to note, and I'm going to ask you to talk about this a little bit, is that while we might say we're doing this for the timber, timber rattlesnake, and it certainly benefits them, obviously, it's also benefiting lots of other prairie species, oh, which is sure. where these other groups come in. So tell us a little bit about, you know, the connection between bluff prairies and rattlesnakes. Why is bluff prairie ma- management important? What What is going on? Like, what what is it about a rattlesnake and a bluff prairie? Like, help us understand yeah, that connection sure. point and how they're Well, I consider rattlesnakes to be a top level predator for that that community, that plant community. They're they're very critical um, for management of of rodents. Uh, We do have a lot of um, mice and voles and shrews that occur on the bluffs. But our work definitely, while it benefits rattlesnakes, it benefits a lot of other species. We have five-line skinks on on many of our sites. Just about every single site that had rattlesnakes had six-line race runners. So there's definitely a very close connection and habitat um, type and selection for snakes and six-line race runners. Um, we have um, uh, whippoorwills nesting on the bluffs, um, particularly on the edges of the bluffs. We have tiger beetles, uh, splendid tiger beetles on the bluffs. We have quite a few insects, uh, butterflies and skippers. Uh, rusty patch bumblebees are occurring in some of these areas. We're also... Um, and uh, like Leonard skippers and uh, monarch butterflies are, are becoming a rare thing now too. So, so the work we're doing is benefiting a lot of other species. It's just timber rattlesnakes got people's attention when it came to funding. And so it was kind of unique, but we've shifted from just focusing our survey work um, on snakes and, and we have expanded it to other species just because we're seeing that benefit to to a lot of other species. And one last thing is plants. Uh, there's a lot of rare plants that occur on those bluff prairies. Our bluff prairies are our remnant habitats. And so they're, the genetics is important in those areas and just having remnants remaining on the, on the landscape. In Southeast Minnesota, a lot of our regular, I call them regular prairies, <laughs> the, the flatter prairies. Um, so we don't have as many of those left. So for us, the, these are critical habitats. I think it's it's important to point out that there's such a great opportunity on these bluffs for prairie management because the competing land uses are very limited, right? Right. right. They're 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 way too steep. Trust me, from my experience working <laughs> on them, nothing, nothing reveals your physical fitness quicker than working on these bluffs. Yeah. Like, is that why you came back? <laughs> Is that why you came back to us? No, I mean, like now the real story comes out. Oh, those hills were real big in Southeast. I had to come back to this flatter land. I actually missed. <laughs> I actually missed the workouts because maybe put on a couple of pounds since I left that job. Um, but yeah, that's just a huge opportunity there because uh, generally it's not a it's not a challenge to impl- it, Maybe this is. Uh, uh, not giving you proper credit, Jamie. It's not as much of a challenge to do habitat management there because the, usually, very often the landowners want it done and they're eager. They're eager for it. Right. They either want it done or they're indifferent because they're not using it for anything. So yeah, I, I think that's yeah. a fair assessment. 
Gotcha. Well, they're using it for their clean air, their clean yeah. water, and their healthy soils. They just might not know right. that, but that's happening, right. people. That's happening. It is for sure. Breathe, breathe cleaner air with a bluff prairie in your backyard. Yeah. That's for sure. That's what my mommy always told me. Okay. Hmm. So, <laughs> Lisa, we're going to transition to you now. Um, we're going to move west, mm-hmm. and we want you to tell us a little bit about the prairie snakes in the southwest part of the state. Give us just an overview here. Okay. Uh, you know, we don't anymore have uh, rattlesnakes out here, and uh the snakes that we do have that are considered to be uh, listed species would be the gopher snake, better known as the bull snake, mm-hmm. uh, the plains hognose snake, the line snake. Uh, in fact, the only place they're found in Minnesota is in southwestern Minnesota. And then there's the North American racer. And these are all listed as species of special concern. But I do want to point out something that pe- most people might be surprised to hear is that all snakes in Minnesota are considered to be protected wildlife under state statute. And that means that nobody can take them, buy them, sell them, transport them, or possess them unless they're allowed under our state laws. So, That's a good point. You know, it's really important. Know, and the reason was is because snakes do play such a valuable role in, in our ecosystems, as Jamie was pointing out, you know, that they're, they're really interconnected uh, and they're also really beautiful and fascinating creatures. But, you know, it's that, that idea from Aldo Leopold that the first rule of intelligent tinkering is to save all parts. And so we've been trying to put um, more attention to that. Uh, you know, that idea of interconnectedness, you know, that was really brought home to me um, a couple of years ago. I was doing surveys out in our Prairie Coteau. That's the really hilly part in the far southwestern portion of the state. And I was looking for the elusive Richardson ground squirrel, better known as flicker tails, um, that, that would be potentially remaining in that dry remnant short prairie that they depend on. So I was talking to all the rural residents and they were recalling their old memories and those of their parents and their grandparents, you know, of a time when, um, you know, way back when there were, you know, bull snakes and hognose snakes were common along with other predators. And back then it was really common, like, you know, decades ago to kill snakes and other predators, Mm -hmm. you know, sort of like the only good predator is dead predator and particularly snakes. But as their numbers dwindled, then all of a sudden became this explosion of rodents like the Richardson's ground squirrels, the flicker tails. Mm -hmm. And then that led to a whole nother round of extermination. And, you know, to now, you know, their numbers dwindled. And this is along with a backdrop of, um, you know, at the same time, another dry prairie species, the burring owl, also disappeared. So we have these three species that more or less, you know, not, not that there aren't other ones involved, but they really were interdependent on each other for food and they used each other's burrows all within that dry prairie landscape that meanwhile was being converted to other uses like agriculture and others. So we now while we still find a few of these Richardson ground squirrels left in our prairie coteau, it looks like that burring owls as a nesting species appear to be gone and mm-hmm. most likely are these prairie snakes like the bull snakes and the plains hognose. And so, you know, we and our partners are working to restore prairie plant communities, but prairie is so much more than the plants. It's that whole 
ecosystem, you know, the, 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 the plants and the creatures that depend on that to be healthy. So as we're working to restore prairie, you know, we can make it look good, but is it healthy? And we're for, you know, species like birds, you know, they can fly there. If you build it, they will come. But what about species like snakes that aren't as mobile? Mm -hmm. They can't fly. And so, you know, that's, so it's both a habitat issue for them as well as, you know, the, you know, as Jamie was talking about the persecution of snakes. Well, it's a great, it's a great example that snakes are part of a functioning community and that when, when they, I mean, everybody always asks this question, why should we care about snakes or mm-hmm. and other critters, especially the ones that people are afraid of, Megan? Um, and, and so <laughs> it's a great example, Lisa, <laughs> that, that they are part of a community and when they disappear, that, uh, negative things start happening to that community. And like in this case, the, the, Richardson's, ground, the Richardson's ground squirrels are also disappearing on us. And that and the burrowing and owls. Mike, you forgot about the birds. I, I did not, Megan. I did not forget about the birds. Um, I, what's interesting to me is that as Lisa was talking, it's like the connections are most obvious when they're gone like so i don't what i mean by that is like as you see a species decline and disappear then all of a sudden you see these other species topple like dominoes and that wasn't necessarily as obvious when it was connected and healthy and whole but as they start to decline and wink out for a a multitude of reasons then you're like oh whoops Mm -hmm. that was a string that needed to be there and and so it's just it brings it home for me how as lisa said cogs and wheels that's an aldo leopold Mm -hmm. reference there but how important all of these pieces are and that we really can't afford to lose them so lisa uh tell us about the challenges that we're looking at for all these prairie snakes what are the challenges and how, how how should we face them well, again, first of all, we do have those habitat issues. Not only are, you know, they, they're greatly diminished, they're um, highly fragmented. You know, mm-hmm. again, the idea that snakes don't fly. Um, but we're, they're all, there's also issues. It's not just the amount of habitat, but for instance, what condition they're in and how they're managed. You know, it's oftentimes we manage to make, you know, the vegetation the vegetative community, the plant community look good to be healthy, or we manage for groups of species like birds, but um, reptiles like snakes can respond very differently and at different scales. And so we would need things like effectiveness monitoring to look at how the snakes respond to different kinds of management. You know, the prairies definitely need management, but particularly in fragmented landscapes, we we may need to uh, adjust that so that it, it accommodates you know, that sort of larger suite of species that make that ecosystem healthy. And of course, then, you know, again, as both Jamie and I brought up, you know, the problem that, you know, snakes get a bad rap, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, there, there's so many, uh, you know, uh, myths about snakes. And, and, you know, I think, you know, if people just, you know, really, you know, had more experience with them, they would realize how beautiful and fascinating they are. And even, okay, even if you're not going to love them, you know, they're, they're, they can be very beneficial, not only for keeping ecosystems healthy, but, but helping to, you know, sort of tamp down uh, species that can be, for instance, agricultural pests or that can carry diseases. And frankly, most snakes just kind of go around 
their business, right. you know, quietly and unseen. Mm-hmm. Hiding in camouflage is kind of like their first go-to. Or, you know, when they are cornered, they kind of can put on a tough guy act. Like, you know, Jamie was referring to for, uh, before, we have, you know, some snake species like the bull snakes or like fox snakes that will vibrate their tail and things like like dry leaves and such. So it kind of sounds like a, mm-hmm. like a, a uh, rattle, but you know, it's, it's their tough guy thing. But, you know, in most cases, you know, savvy people know that, you know, landowners really value their, these beneficial snake neighbors and simply let them be on their way. And that's the kind of message that we're, you know, that we're really trying to get across. Yeah. Wonderful. I've, I've, one message I've tried to communicate is that it's, it's totally fine, <clears throat> Megan, to be, to be afraid of snakes like like there's, and there's really no reason necessarily that you that, that you need to fight that or, or be ashamed of it or anything I'm not ashamed <laughs> let me be clear I'm not ashamed I feel like there's a lot of projection from no. you to me right now I'm confident in my fear of snakes okay. I'm owning it you need to hold you need to hold one of those adorable little red belly snakes that go. they're not even, or, or like the line snakes that aren't even as big around as my pinky. Lisa, let's talk about they it. They are uh, adorable. Offline. Off this is, that is snake therapy by tossing a snake into Megan Bennett's hands is not going to be the thing that makes Megan Bennett be but like, you know, oh, look at these beautiful little critters. No, they are beautiful. They need to not be touching me. That was where you went wrong. So let's, uh, we're going to transition here uh, before we get too off. No, I, this is this is okay. this is important. Megan, your attitude about snakes is wonderful because, yeah, yes, you were afraid of them, and yet you appreciate them and you respect them, and so that's that's the key Absolutely. thing. Absolutely, one thousand percent. I just want to get a give a quick shout out to those like our park uh, naturalists at Blue Mountains, Amber Brooks, that she does these really popular programs with her sidekick Chuck the Garter Snake, and he together. <laughs> They're winning hearts and minds. Yeah. One snake. Well, at a time. fear of snakes is typically a learned behavior. So, do you have other family members who are afraid of snakes? This is uh, this podcast is about prairie. It's not about mega benefits therapy <laughs> issues. So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna transition here. I'm really glad, Lisa, that you mentioned Blue Mountain State Park because there is you can tell Mike wrote this question, a very cool and interesting project at Blue Mountain State Park that we want to hear more about. Uh, you you did something really incredible and really hard to do by building a hibernaculum out there. And, and we want you to walk us through that. Okay, well, just to give a little backdrop, um, you know, some ideas start with a trickle. This started with a flood. <laughs> and there had been a dam on uh, Lower Mound Creek that goes through Blue Mound State Park. And there was this huge flood that wiped out most of the, the dam. And uh, long story short, a lot of discussions. And it was decided that they were going to restore the natural prairie stream and remove the rest of the dam. So that has lots of benefits. The downside is that that dam structure had served as an, a den, a hibernaculum, primarily used for overwintering by uh, a number uh, of snakes. And so a decision was made jointly with um, the Division of Parks and Trails to try to uh, see if, you know, we try to avoid destroying, you know, natural hibernaculum but sometimes it can't be can't be avoided like you know also with projects like this or like trans you know like roadway projects and so we wanted to try to see if we could create 
uh, an artificial hibernaculum um, nearby that could provide habitat for them, um, but it could also uh, uh, see if you know, if something like that would work and that could be used in other situations. Mm-hmm. So kind of an experiment. The problem is there's, there's lots of designs uh, for these things out on the internet. The bad news is most of them are really experimental, untested, like, you know, just because there's a design, is it good? So we decided to use this modified version of one that was designed by a professional herpetologist, an expert in reptiles and amphibians and, uh, from Wisconsin. Uh, shout out to Bob Hay. And so um, this project was to evaluate whether they would use it. And then more importantly, was it safe for them? Um, so that when you're thinking about overwintering, the first thing, you know, you got to remember is that snakes are, quote unquote, cold blooded. That meaning long and short, they can't regulate their internal body temperature like birds and mammals can. Um, but it's dependent on the outside, you know, the surrounding temperature. So they need something that it's, you know, they need to be warm enough so they don't freeze during winter, but cold enough so that their internal metabolism slows down so they don't expend a lot of energy Goldilocks, to survive right? that long winter. <laughs> yeah, right. exactly. It's the Goldilocks <laughs> thing. Not too hot, not too cold, just right. So that was what we were aiming for with these conditions. So, um, we, you know, again, we collaborated with Parks and Trails and, uh, you know, again, with, you know, the people that provided the, the design and we tweaked it. And so long short, we, we created the hypernaculum in the fall. And then later that year is when they, uh, they removed the rest of the, um, the dam structure. So we tried to rescue as many snakes as we could. Unfortunately, they ended up doing the demo kind of late when it was cold. So that was an involved effort as it was, but we transport, you know, tried to keep them warm and transferred and put them down the hole. Meanwhile, we had a temperature probe down that we had, had a pipe extending down. So it would go down to the bottom because we wanted to know what were those temperatures. So um, here's How what we learned. We uh, had evidence. It was um, the, the design was to go because just to put in uh, perspective, uh, frost line, they have to be below the frost line. And the frost line in Minnesota, depending on the year, can go down to like 11, almost 12 feet. So but the idea for the snakes that we were kind of looking at, garter snakes, red bellies, fox snakes, not all snakes are have the same needs, but they're they're. They kind of like a little bit of water, not flooded, but a little bit of water at the bottom. It keeps them from drying out, desiccating, and it also helps water, you know, kind of helps moderate temperatures. So that took us down to the um, the uh, water table, which is about seven and a half feet. And then we mounded it about five feet. So to get that kind of, you know, 11 to 12 foot I see. insulation, so nice. to speak. So anyway, we checked the, you know, the following spring and sure enough, there were snakes coming out. And then also we had, um, we had, we, we monitored later, you know, the following fall and we had snakes going in and out. We had, uh, time-lapse cameras, uh, that, that documented that. So we also started, did some other, the snakes uh, monitoring the, on it. The snakes started using the hibernaculum even without you putting them in there. They, they chose to go there. Right, yeah. exactly. And we and we also, uh, p- you know, pulled the data from the temperature probe. Our temperatures, despite, you know, like really like 
there were there were air temperatures documented during the, the coldest part of the winter, like 30 below. The temperature at the bottom never went below about uh, 35 degrees Fahrenheit and never throughout the year got above 60. So also if it got really hot, it was also a place of refuge during the summer. So we got those Goldilocks nice. uh, uh, conditions. Wandering. So and so we hope to do some even more monitoring. Okay. Just to interrupt you, the... Um, so the real impetus for this was the fact that they were destroying or this dam, taking down this dam, right? This old dam. And um, it, it, and the snakes were underneath it or around it in the, in the soil. And, were, and there was a damage of more, or a risk of mortality. I, I just, part of the point I'm, I'm trying to get at here is that they don't necessarily need us to build them hibernaculum in, in normal conditions. In this case, it was trying to prevent these snakes from getting killed, Correct. Right. And that particularly, there, there were some alternatives, but it, this was also, again, a real opportunity for um, experimental use. That it, you know, again, if you can't avoid, mm-hmm. um, you know, you know, destroying a hibernaculum, mm-hmm. um, that this way that there, there may be some some mitigation options. Gotcha. And it was also a real a valuable platform for um, outreach. We, you know, we, we've used a lot of this, uh, you know, like footage on it, you know, photos and video on social media. Uh, again, the interpretive naturalist is keyed into this. And we also have done, you know, expanded to do other other monitoring uh, on prairie on Blue Mounds that we hope to apply elsewhere. I have to ask really quick, was Chuck <laughs> the naturalist helper in the borough? No, uh, Chuck is... Uh, I. It's a captive uh, uh, garter snake, a beautiful one with a red stripe that uh, they use for education. And <laughs> Chuck's right, amazing. I, I was just checking. I, had him I just need to know. Well, this has been wonderful. Jamie, Lisa, you guys are just a font of information. And I we could talk about this all day. We really could. But we have got to move to our next section. is the part of the podcast where we recommend a book, a blog, or a paper. And one of the things that I have just been hearing over and over again in my mind as as Lisa and Jamie have been sharing with us is partnership, prairie, science, and outreach. Those are things that make successfulness. <laughs> those, are, those are things that make good projects work. Okay. Lisa, just lead us away with that um, wonderful failing grammar on my part. Okay. Well, uh the first uh, scientific article that I want to highlight is called Responses of Grassland Snakes to Tallgrass Prairie Restoration by Richard King and John Vanek. Uh, and it's a very recent one uh, from 2020. And, you know, sort of the, the take home points is, again, it really re- reiterates the importance of snakes as higher order predators in grassland ecosystems, and um, that it's really important uh, for re- uh, restoration success. So we really have to be considering them in that suite of our effectiveness monitoring. And also that idea that um, larger, more mobile snakes are are able to reoccupy grassland restoration soon after conversion, for instance, from row crop agriculture, if they have suitable habitat adjacent or some sort of, you know, safer travel corridors. 
um, roads and things can be very, uh, very, you know, lethal to them. But the, the occupancy by the smaller, less mobile uh, species often does not occur. So it really shows the uh, there may the, be some need for more active management or um, re, reintroduction. It really shows the value of the connectedness that we talk about when we're talking about prairie management. Right. Yeah. And then the second one is uh, body temperatures and movements of hi- hibernating snakes uh, and thermal gradients of natural hibernacula um, by Malcolm McCartney, Carl Larson, and Patrick Gregory. And the, the reason why I was looking at that was because of our uh, hibernation work. And it says that, you know, um, dense and extreme northern portions of a species range appear to be more isolated and uncommon. And they become really a lot more important because of the more extreme temperatures you know they have different stressors than species in southern part in you know, parts of the u.s and that even though you know you, you might look at the sort of surface geology and you might think that there's lots of upper, you know potential suitable dens that they're not is actually um widely distributed and available as you might think and that there's really a lot more that we need to learn about what are suitable hibernacula so again underscores you know, we really need to try to avoid uh, uh, destroying those if, if uh, at all possible, even if there are p- maybe, you know, some successes with artificial hibernacula. Great. Very good. Thank you, Lisa. Jamie, how about okay, your, what's your I'm going to go on the opposite end of the research scale because, uh, Megan, um, most fear of snakes is a learned behavior. So I'm targeting. Oh, here we go again. <laughs> I'm targeting. I learned my fear from the snakes themselves. Let's be clear. They taught me to There's respect a, them. A, a children's book called Rattlesnakes. Um, and it's written by Ted O'Hare. And it's, it's pretty basic, but it has lots of great pictures of, of a bunch of different types of rattlesnakes because there are many different species. And it talks about some of their characteristics. And it also, um, one of the things that happens when people try to do outreach with snakes in general is they always put them in this really menacing pose. And so this book does a good job of not making them all look like they're about ready to attack. And then the other one that I like is... Um, it's uh, the Take Along Guide of Snakes, Salamanders, and Lizards, and it's uh, by Diane Burns and Linda Garrell. And this is another one that's um, pretty good for kids to just talk about snakes and their habits. Um, we did a, a research study um, as to why people don't like snakes, and a lot of it is uh, they don't like the way they move. So I want to give people a, uh, this isn't literature per se, but this is an at-home experiment that you can do to see what it's like to move like a snake. So go into your kitchen and get your saran wrap and wrap it around your legs and put your arms down along your side and wrap that around or that packing tape and then get on the ground and throw some candy on there and try to move towards it. And then, and then you'll see why. Don't just do it to do it. Make sure that there's candy that you are going to get after you do this. Don't, don't just be wrapping yourselves up, people, for no reason. Put a donut on the floor. Make it exactly. worth it. And make it worth it. Activity. Everybody who's stuck at home and needs a science experiment for their kids. Perfect. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Jamie, that's amazing. I love also 
I'm proud of you. You may be the first, Megan can confirm this. Is she the first one ever to have a, a book targeted towards kids? On the I don't know if it's the first ever, but oh. uh, first with an activity for yeah. sure. <laughs> hey, Megan. Yeah, Mike. Let's go for a hike and look for some reptiles. Okay. Yeah. I mean, yay! Let's do that. Let's go on the prairie. You first. You first. Jamie, tell us where we're hiking today. Whitewater. I'm going to pick an area in Whitewater, and we call it the Minieska Cutoff Road. It's a it's an old cartway uh, that we use as an access road. It's off of Highway 30, which is just west. Excuse me, east of the Whitewater River. So it's part of the main branch of the Whitewater. And you can take that access road back into it's Sand Prairie, Sand Barren, Savannah, and Bluff Prairie all together. And it's it's a really unique area. It's mostly remnant habitat. There's all kinds of different wildlife species in this area. We did find some rattlesnake sheds in that area, um, but we uh, we haven't actually found live rattlesnakes. But we did find some sheds. But it's just it's amazing. You can climb that bluff. And you can see over the whole valley, and it's one of the few places that you can go where you, you only see one or two houses. It used to be you couldn't see any houses um, from this area, but one person did build on the bluff. But um, but it's just so beautiful. And we're also doing some restoration work in that area, so it's an opportunity to see restoration as well as see the remnant habitat and enjoy a lot of different prairie species, reptiles and amphibians, insects, birds, all kinds of good stuff. I'll, I'll second that. Nice. I, I love that 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 road that Jamie's talking about. I've gone there now, I think two or three times, just on my own on my own time yeah. for the fun of it because it yeah. is so it's cool unique. in there. For, for, especially for uh, most of Minnesota, but for Southeast for sure, because that sand prairie is is really unique. Right, Lisa. How about like, riddle me this real quick. Ahead. When when you hike up a bluff, is there a donut at the top, and are you wrapped in saran wrap? I haven't tried that, but that, that might be. I, I would have licorice at the top, so maybe then I would do it. There you go. I just wanted to know if if this was a motivated. It'd be easier I, to go down though. What was your motivation? That's a good point. <laughs> Lisa, take us back. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, it's always hard to choose, but I, at this time, I'm going to highlight Eden Wildlife Management Area. Um, it's in Pipestone County, uh, very not that far from the western border of Minnesota. And it is one of... Uh, Particularly the northern part of it, where they've been, they've had uh, really excellent uh, prairie restoration. It's uh, a place that uh, Mike and I have been uh, surveying for pollinators, bumblebees, and butterflies. I have seen uh, some garter snakes there, so we know there's snakes. It is amazing. I it, it, this past year became one of my favorite places to go. It is just a wash in color, waves of color as the the different prairie flowers bloom. And um, I, it just, it is so beautiful. Uh, you do have to sometimes, you know, brave, you know, there are, there are some areas of thistle in there, but those are also very popular with, uh, with pollinators, but it is, it is just amazing. It, it was my favorite place 
to go survey. There were so many bumblebees and the, a, a number of my uh, favorite favorite bumblebees are out there and I, I learned so many new butterflies. I just, I, I, if you, if you, if you want a really beautiful prairie experience, I I'm glad you picked, Eden, I'm glad you picked Eden mentioned it. Um, it's important to point out that, that, that the area you're talking about is a restoration. And so when you go in there and it is exploding with flowers, it's kind of, it's almost an unfair <laughs> comparison to Remnant Prairie. It's, it's, uh, it's, it, it is. It does have, appear to have a lot of value for for insects and pollinators, and it's a cool place. Wonderful! This is great. I love this season. I can't wait. We're gonna. Oh man, we started with snakes, which I'm fine with, and we're just gonna keep moving on into all these beautiful pieces of the prairie and what makes it so incredibly important and special. So next week, we're gonna be talking about a very special occurrence that happened right here. In southern Minnesota, just outside of the city of Mankato, it's a story of healing, Dakota history, ecology, restoration of the landscape that's been reduced to just <laughs> under 2% of its native range in Minnesota. We are going to be I'm chatting with four very special guests. I know we're going to be talking about the Minnesota bison conservation herd and the return of those bison to Minneopa State Park. It's going to be beautiful. I can't wait. We've got so much good stuff in store hey, for hey, you this Megan. season. I just yeah, want to Mike. mention, uh, since we have two current non-game uh, program staff and one former, it's important, I think, for us to mention the non-game wildlife Yay. program. That, and we, we are dependent on donations. And uh, so please, listeners, donate if you can. If you care about prairie, we do a lot of hard work on prairie. Lisa and I, it's a big part of our jobs. So uh, tax returns or online at our website. Wonderful. As always, you can find all of the resources we talked about today on our website at mndnr.gov backslash prairie pod. This episode was produced by the Minnesota Department of Natural Resources Southern Region under the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Partnership, which is part of the Minnesota Prairie Conservation Plan. It was edited by Dan writer and engineered by the fantastic Jed Beecher. Oh my gosh, we'll catch you next time on Prairie Tuesday. This has been fun. Been See awesome. you next week. <laughs> you couldn't help it. You had to do it. <laughs>